Hi, I'm Amber, and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Max Menser. He is a private chef, and he has written a cookbook about eggs, which I can't wait to pick his mind on that one. And he also um, owns uh, Keto Chef Max, where you do like cooking shows and et cetera like that, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, meal prep and, and catering. catering. Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk a lot about that. I'm super excited to have Max on because he is more of a keto chef and so let's talk about that welcome max hello everybody awesome okay let's get first of all some background info on on you tell us about your professional life and also if you don't mind get a little bit into your health journey you can just be basic and we'll expand it later but yeah so uh you know my first career actually had nothing to do with food and i was a professional musician and i was a drummer Um, I did a lot of jazz acts in the surrounding states where I live in Colorado, and then I took to heavy metal drumming, and that was kind of fun, where I expanded upon that and went and toured nationally for that with some pretty big names. Um, And after that, you know, I was kind of finding myself getting into fitness, and it was kind of interesting. You know, I've done all the diets. Uh, I started with, you know, low calorie, obviously, as like a precursor to the intro stuff. And then it headed into like intermittent fasting, carb cycling. And I kind of would have issues with the low calorie, obviously, and it would deter from what I was doing. And then uh, I was like, okay, like, why isn't this working for me? And I'd switch to another diet, try that out. And if it didn't work for me, I'd go to another one. Uh, but, um, as far as like that, that kind of led me into my culinary career where I was like, okay, I would like to find out a little bit more about the health benefits of food and what I can do with it, with being a diabetic as well. And I thought it was pretty interesting because, you know, I like to cook growing up, my mom, you know, bless her heart. Like she didn't have the best cooking skills, but she would make like five meals that were like the staple dishes. Right. And so I had to fend for myself a little bit. And so I went towards uh, at about 23 years old going to culinary school. And I told them that I was going to change my career and they were no part of that. And so I jumped into this headfirst, knowing that I was not going to be making the money that I used to make and would have to really compensate for those things. And um, I went in, I did a trade school at August Escoffier School of Culinary Arts. And um, that was kind of interesting because, you know, I had already taken my core classes and just about a, uh, graduated with an associate's degree from a community college. And I went into that trade school, came out with a pretty good knowledge of food and the diversity of it and how to operate. And then I got my ass handed to me in a real kitchen. Uh, you know, culinary school, I would say, does not set you up to be the best cook in a real kitchen. Um, and it's funny, like everybody will see that coming out of it. They're like, it's a waste of money. Don't do it. And, and in some ways, yeah, I could see it. But if you go to like CIA, which is the Culinary Institute of America, you could set yourself up for life and become a sous chef right out of that. Um, and that's more business professional like stuff if you want networking and all that kind of stuff. But I went from that into moving back to Colorado and I worked at a five-star five diamond resort called the Broadmoor. 
And then for a year I was there and I learned a lot about like professionalism as a kitchen, you know, um, how to operate, how to move, how to be as best as you can in the career that I was in. And that had kitchens ranging from like banquets, you know, room service all the way to like modern cuisine. Then uh, coming out of that, I moved back to Austin and I started working at a couple of nationally recognized restaurants, one of which was called Barley Swine. And I stayed there for a little under a year and it was difficult because it's like 13 hour days um, and you're working long hours and you may not get a day off for like six days. And you all know that like kitchens are really tough. And so I took all the knowledge that I could from that place and then left. And then I ended up going to uh, open a place called Red Ash here in Austin, Texas, um, where I was a, I helped open that restaurant and I stayed there for about three and a half years until COVID started up and they canned everybody. Uh, yeah. That stinks. <laughs> I mean, it's what it is, you know, COVID kind of ruined a lot for a lot of different service industry people. It sure did. Okay. So how did you get into the private chef business? I want to yeah. pick your mind on this one. Cause I'm so curious. So when I got uh, fired from Red Ash and they let everybody go, I was like, okay, like, where am I going to get money? And that was when like unemployment wasn't a thing during COVID. And I was like trying to figure out, I was like, why don't I just start a private chef company that's focusing on keto? And, um, you know, I'd been doing and dabbling in keto for about two years at that point. And uh, I actually was a private chef for Jason Whitrock. And um, then I was, you know, kind of dabbling on my own and I created my cookbook, but uh, I got into that via Aubrey Marcus where um, I like was messaging him back and forth. And I was like, Hey man, like, let me cook for you and I'll show you kind of what I do. And it was kind of where like my career just jump started. And I cooked for Aubrey. He offered me a full ride scholarship to his fit for service mastermind uh, after the dinner. And I got into that and had a blast, met a bunch of different people and through touring through his mastermind stuff and meeting different locations. Uh, I also was kind of cooking here and there and getting paid to do it. And these were like bigger catering opportunities, but it set me up so that um, I could understand what to do. And I had connections for that stuff. And at the beginning of the new year, uh, it was pretty fun. And I went and I basically jumped straight into it head first and got the LLC um, and basically the credit card, like basically everything that you have to do to start a business. And it was pretty cool because uh, I had like four clients, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're doing what I do at a high level and you're the sole person of this, like four clients for a private chef is difficult. And uh so I was doing that and then it started kind of becoming apparent that I had a lot of talent and skill in this and like really getting organized and professional about it. And I started opening up on products and that's something that's kind of new and just now mm. developing uh, for that premise of stuff. But I feel like a lot of the stuff that I make for my clients, like even though it looks like meal prep, which never looks good, <laughs> it can definitely be elevated just by like plating it nicer, you know? Of course. Okay. So you've had some celebrity clients. Can you name a few? Yes. Yeah, so I cooked for 
um, Jason Whitrock, uh, Logan Delgado, um, Aubrey Marcus, Eric Leha, and um, I met Joe Rogan through that as well. Um, trying to think if I've had anybody else that was a big name. Um, I have opportunities that are arising that could be kind of fun that are like more notable in the culinary area that I probably shouldn't talk about just yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's been some pretty big names that I've done stuff for. Okay. How was Joe Rogan? Is he pretty cool? Oh uh, yeah, he's cool. His house is super weird. It's all Asian. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. And, and he wanted the keto kind of stuff. Is that when he was kind of trying to do carnivore keto? You know, I, I, a lot of these people that are up on this level, they're just like, dude, just do whatever you do. They don't really care. Like, you know, there's obvious people that are like, oh, keto. Yeah, we'll do some of that. I love that kind of diet or paleo or, you know, carnivore. They love that stuff. And all of which, like I can pull from a plethora of chef knowledge from my career into that kind of stuff, you know? That's very cool. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your health history. You're a type one diabetic. Give us some history on that. All right. So they think that I was basically born with it. I was diagnosed when I was one. Um, They have a thing that's called the enterovirus, which is relatively new in the community. Um, It's been around for a little bit, but they think what happens is the mom contracts it and it attacks the fetus, causing it to be a diabetic. Uh, is what I get off of it. But um, basically, you know, obviously type one diabetes is like uh, the premise is the islet cells attack or your autoimmune disease attacks your islet cells and causes you to not produce any insulin. And I've had it for 30 years, basically my entire life. Um, and, you know, it's caused issues, but not like drastic, you know, like a lot of people they are like, oh, I've lost a limb by the time I've had it for 30 years. And I'm like, what? Like, how can you have diabetes and have it that bad? But people don't ever take into account that medicine for diabetics is incredibly expensive if you don't have health insurance. Um, And I was lucky and fortunate enough to have health insurance throughout my entire life and it'd be beneficial for me and it was a well-provided service. Uh, But uh, around like 18, I went onto the insulin pump and that completely changed the game for me. Uh, before I was using syringes and I developed what's called the Popeye and that's just basically uh, scar tissue from the needles mm. and the insulin being injected and uh, I took the pump to the extreme level and I got on the CGM and uh, auto mode which is from Medtronic and that's been able to really monitor my blood sugars in the best way possible um, what it is, is, uh, a lot of people don't understand. There's a couple different forms of insulin. There's fast acting and long acting insulin. And the fast acting is what you should have throughout the entire day. Um, if you're on the insulin pump and the basal, which is the amount of insulin that is secreted throughout the entire day, which normal people do throughout their day, but I don't, um, is what keeps your blood sugar stable. And, So my basal and my insulin intake was drastically reduced as soon as I got on the pump. Um, And especially when I went on to keto, Um, my keto diet basically took me from like 
beforehand when I was on intermittent fasting carb cycling, I was doing about two to 300 units in about two or three days. So you could say I was doing a hundred units a day. I went down to 25 units a day. Um, Whoa. And that's just from cutting carbs. And also, uh, you know, the insulin sensitivity is increasing as I'm going through keto. Um, and because of that, you know, insulin is a growth hormone and I struggled incredibly with maintaining my weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would have fluctuations where I would binge and I would just gain all my weight back in like a couple weeks and then have to get it back off. Um, and I noticed that trend come up a little bit more. And so I have to kind of watch myself with those little triggers that happen so I can avoid that stuff. But it's a lot more manageable because when I'm on carbs, a lot of the more uh, mental aspects of health really are greatly affected rather than when I'm on a keto diet where I feel like my brain's being fueled by a better source than it is sugar, which is more of an addictive property. Okay. I want to ask you this, and and I hear this a lot and it kind of makes me crazy. Okay. We understand that type one diabetics will always have to be on some form of insulin. Yeah. Okay. We all agree on that. That's not, uh, not an issue. What the issue comes down to that I have seen is that because people have that attitude, there's nothing you can do. You're always going to be on insulin, which is true. So why should I care what I eat? Because I'll just, you know, adjust my insulin. No big deal. So if I want to eat a piece of cake, okay, fine. No problem. I'll just uh, up up my insulin. What is your attitude with that? Um. You know, it is freeing to be on the pump a little bit more for your diet. And I'm not saying diet in regards of like eating a low carb diet, but like if you wanted to eat a little bit more freely, you have the opportunity to do so. However, you got to understand like the food that you eat is very important, what's fueling your body and what goes into that stuff. And I do take a lot of pride in what I do in the keto aspect of my diet and being a chef. Like I've always purchased organic and made things with like farm to table kind of foods, you know? And that to me speaks volumes when it comes to health, because you know what's in your food um, and you know what's going to affect you if you have something. Uh, A lot of people don't necessarily go and look at the ingredients label uh, to find out what's in that stuff. And there's a lot of crap. Um, But like, you know, if you're going to eat a piece of cake, like no matter what, you're going to have a spike in blood glucose and then and a non-diabetic, you know, they would immediately have their blood sugar crash because of the sugar intake and being compensated by insulin. Uh, and they're going to feel like they go hypoglycemic. And it's in a sense, the same way as a diabetic, but there's a, a couple other things that I I've noticed. And if I go to sleep on a full stomach or like I ate something before bed, I can wake up with what's called Dawn phenomena. Or mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, what happens is you wake up and the adrenaline spike actually activates your glucose dumpage and or your glycogen dump and raises your blood sugar and you have to adjust your insulin for it. I haven't had any issues with that being on keto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, y'all hearing this? Y'all hearing this? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like timing of your meals and obviously what you eat is a huge important play and factor in all of this stuff. So you are of the opinion that even though you can change up your insulin to fit what you're eating, 
it's still better for your health to fix your diet and lifestyle so you're not as reliant on as much insulin and you're not damaging your body. I've heard, and I don't know if this is, you know, hundred percent true or whatever, but I I've heard that there's a possibility that a type one can also become a type two where they become resistant to the insulin. If they do what we were just talking about, where they keep upping insulin, upping insulin, yeah. it, that eventually they might be, you know, sensitive. And then at that point they're kind of screwed. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I've actually battled with that whole scenario and having life experience with it, I think is the best indication of how to talk about this. Um, for me, when I was like getting, putting weight on and I was getting heavier and fatter, right. I noticed a significant increase of insulin, but I also noticed that I would gain weight so drastically and fast with extra insulin because it's a growth hormone that it caused me issues. And what a normal person would gain when they were eating like what I was, would be doubled almost. And I would say that like, yeah, your insulin sensitivity is going to decrease. And so like, you're going to need more to go into like the amount that you need to counteract what you're eating. Now, if you actually take the initiative and exercise, watch what you eat, go low carb and increase, you know, if you're focused on whole grains versus like white carbs, that's better, but also, you know, just negating carbs and bringing your insulin sensitivity down is perfect for that kind of stuff. And I know like with fasting that increases drastically. Absolutely. And and I find that really sad because diabetes is so common these days where you used to not really hear about that many people. I remember one girl in my high school who had, she was a type one and that is the only person for years that I knew that was diabetic. And now it's like, it's just common. I was pre-diabetic. I was never full blown diabetic, but I was pre-diabetic right on that edge. And that was scary enough after, you know, seeing some of the, the stuff that happens when you don't take care of yourself. And just because you can up the insulin to take care of that piece of cake, that is not really a good healthy thing to do. And that it just kind of, it scares me for those people because that is a very prominent attitude. It's like, they just gave up, just gave up. Yeah. And I will say that like a type one becoming a type two in perception of your question, it's, it can happen, but there's a strong indication that it won't ever. And uh, you know, I know Ken Berry does a pretty cool research with islet cells producing insulin still in type ones. And it's really cool. Like he, he said, get this, look at this. And I did that. And obviously, because I've had it for 30 years, there's nothing. Um, but when you're newly diagnosed type one, you still have the opportunity to reverse it in a sense, if it's like, if you're really, really jump on it you know wow I did not know that wow Um, but you gotta know the difference between the two well so like type one is insulin dependent like we Mm -hmm. rely on it to be able to survive whereas Mm -hmm. type two you still secrete insulin from your pancreas your islet cells however there's not enough for that so you have to compensate via pill or extra insulin and then when you start upping your insulin more your pancreas is like oh I don't need to produce this anymore so it just shuts off 
Yeah. I, I've known many people because I talk to people all the time, whether it's my clients or on podcasts and et cetera, success stories. And they've been able to, a lot of them within two weeks, get their insulin level, their glucose levels down and in return their insulin levels to where they've, I guess you could say reverse. Some people have an issue with that, that uh, statement, because of course, if you started eating, you know, crap again, you would be back to being a diabetic again. So of course we know that, but you know, for the word reversed, but a lot of people can do that within two weeks. What does that tell you? I mean, to be Um, able to reverse it that quick, it's like, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, when I went on the ketogenic diet, I went from a, I think it was like a 9.8 A1C, which is pretty high to a 6.7. And I dropped it in the next two months after that to a 6.3. Wow. It just continually goes down or stays pretty normal in that area. Um, And, you know, when people see that, I think they don't understand the inflammatory response of carbs and sugars. And so what's happening in your body is there's a lot of inflammatory response markers and that's upping, you know, your insulin production and making you put on more fat. Um, And in that kind of regards, like when you take all that stuff out and you allow your, your body to heal and get rid of some of that inflammation and you're not ingesting things that aren't necessarily good for you, uh, you're going to see a pretty drastic response in what happens with your insulin production. Yeah, just a quick story with my dog um, who recently passed, April Fool's, um, due to diabetic complications. Um, she, we had her on insulin, you know, as soon as she was diagnosed, we had her on insulin and it wasn't a bad level. And for a while we thought we put her on an all meat diet, hoping that that would help get her off that crap kibble where we thought we were doing a good thing with the kibble we had, but it, it was still awful. And so we switched her to a all meat diet. And, um, the insulin was pretty low and we were like, okay, all right, that's not bad. And then she started having issues and we had to start upping it and upping it and upping it. And then she went into ketoacidosis and we had to rush her to the vet and it took like two days to get it back down to even a semi okay level. We're not even talking a good level. And we were able to kind of control it a little bit. I mean, for a very short period of time, and then it went nuts again. And, uh, she, the the insulin was no longer working. We we couldn't give her enough insulin. And then she went into ketoacidosis again. And we ended up having to put her down because it was just, it was just too, too late. And from what I understand dogs, when they get diabetes, it's more like a human's type one. Yeah, that I was thinking that I'd be able to help her reverse it like humans do, but apparently that's not really a thing. I'm, I, I don't know a hundred percent about that, but um, it didn't work for her and that was horrifying. So it's yeah. kind of, you know. Yeah. And understanding, like, I think uh, DKA and humans is a pretty important area. You know, for me being that I've had diabetes, like I've had DKA um, mm. And, you know, it's not fun, but I will say that, you know, insulin and water and salt levels play an important factor in all of that. Uh, You know, nutritional ketosis is way, way different to diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, You know, I know there's minimal levels where anything above eight is considered DKA. Anything below that is considered nutritional ketosis. Um, And, you know, I've been 
like doing this diet for so long and the times that I've had like a six or a seven minimal is like very rare and I this is like the times where like I was eating for a Thanksgiving meal and everything was fat you know and so I ate a plethora of stuff and it was all day long and I was only at a six minimal so it's really hard to get up into those areas uh even when you are diabetic you know Yeah, that's very interesting. And so many people do get that confused and they think, oh, you're on a keto diet. You're going to get ketoacidosis. Don't be on it too long. I'm like, that's not how it works. It's not how any of that works. Yeah, I I just love those myths that continue that you see come up all the time. It's crazy. Okay, so when you've gone to your doctor, do they ask you what you're doing? Because it sounds like you're doing really well. Do they ask you, like, you know, what diet are you following? Do they, are they concerned? Do they care? There's more concern than I would like to admit, you know, and mm. it baffles me a little bit because I do tell them and then they see the results and they're like really puzzled. I wouldn't say confused. Um, but the diets that I see that diabetics are normally on are like a low protein diet. And I understand like, you don't want to wreck your kidneys, but you got to understand it. If you're working out, like you need protein, Um, you know, and I think keto actually addresses the correct and appropriate amount that a human being needs to survive and maintain a good weight or even like put muscle on. Um, and you don't need a lot, you know, like 140 grams is like my max and I don't need anything else. That's what I eat almost somewhere in there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But I'm a full out carnivore. So there you go. So you are in fact, keto, not all the way carnivore. No, but you know, I will enjoy a steak. I will say that. Well, heck yeah, because that's some good stuff, right? All right. You mentioned to me off video that you had some issues when you were trying out intermittent fasting and some carb cycling. Is that what I understand? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll elaborate on that. So uh, when I was really getting deep into my fitness um, in health, I found intermittent fasting carb cycling. And I will say that it was a lot of fun and it was so helpful in like losing weight Like I got down to 8% body fat within a couple of weeks. Whoa. Yeah. And, um, and I was, I was pretty lean. I was shredded. You could see my abs. Uh, you could see my obliques, you know, uh, my muscles and my arms were defined, all that stuff. And like, it was great, but I I felt like shit. Um, and it was because of the constant fluctuation of the amount of insulin and where Mm. my blood sugar was floating, you know? And I was like, why, why do I look this good and feel like crap? And so I moved on from that diet after that. Cause I was like, uh, this isn't, this is not good, you know? And so, cause I had a huge binge episode after that, when I hit the 8% body fat and I had battled with binging beforehand and it was all because of the carbs and it kind of, I would, in a sense, gave me like a mild bulimic episode or like you know zone that I was in where I wasn't gonna stick there for very long uh but also like it happened like I would basically eat myself until I puked you know Mm. and uh 
I, I didn't really think it was bulimic, but then I was like talking with friends who have battled it and they're like, yeah, that's bulimia. And I was like, oh, great. Like, <laughs> thanks for giving me the diagnosis, you know? So did you struggle with that uh, emotionally, mentally? Was it like um, something that you really... Yeah, so, you know, straight up, like I'm an emotional eater and I've addressed kind of like where those issues have come from. And it's important to realize that like, the things that bother you are the things are like your triggers are going to do that and cause you to kind of be an emotional eater or something like that. So I, I go to comfort, I go to food for comfort. Right. And I think being a chef, that's pretty obvious dead giveaway. Um, and so when I was doing that, I'd always go to like pints of ice cream, donuts, mm. pizza, you know, the things that I found that tasted good and brought me like a satisfactory level of hunger, you know? And, you know, even though it wouldn't be very good, um, I still enjoyed it. And so like the carbs though, that were in those products would keep me going on eating that stuff because of the sugars and those and the addictive mm -hmm. properties of it. So like once I got off of that, um, it just kind of stopped. It took me a little bit of while while I was on keto, like at the six month mark of starting, like I went and I tried a pint of ice cream again and I did not get the same satisfaction that I did then before. And I was like, that's weird. Like I didn't need another one. And I was like, cool. And so I kept going with it. And then like, I just found myself getting more into salt and having that be the primary source of what I do and having more savory foods. And like right now, like I don't make a lot of fat bombs um, and I don't eat a lot of sweet foods, but uh, I mean, I'm known for that kind of stuff because <laughs> fat kid at heart, you know? Uh, but yeah, like when I got out of that, it just, it blows my mind to see that kind of stuff change, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you mentioned that you kind of know where your issues come from was it something like a trauma from the past or we talked a lot on my podcast about these kind of emotional things and how things from the past can actually come back and continue to plague you your whole life if you don't go back and deal with them and a lot yeah. of it manifests in food as well as alcoholism drug use you know self-medicating things yeah and you know, for instance, like I know I put a lot of scenarios that happened in my past off, you know, and I just try to like block that stuff out. And it, it wasn't necessarily the best thing. And, uh, you know, going to therapy helps a lot with like talking about those things openly without being judged or in those kind of contexts. But when I was in high school, you know, I was like very depressed and down um, because of some things that had happened in my life with like family and friends and all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of disassociated with people. Mm. And I did find comfort in food uh, when I was coming out of high school, which was great um, <laughs> for a time being, you know. But uh, when I look 